Matthew 1, verse 20 through 23. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, I want to say good morning and hello to all of us who are here at our Sugarloaf campus and those who are joining us at our Mill Creek campus and those who will be watching by live streams of the power of the internet and the computer. We are glad that you're joining us today. We're in a series called Christmas, really, because I think increasingly people do ask, particularly people just out on the streets that maybe don't attend church on a regular basis or go at all, and we know that number is growing. And the question is, do you really believe in Christmas? And it's a good question because when Americans were asked this question, what do you most look forward to during the Christmas season? Only 11% said they were looking forward to either religious reflection or going to church. 70% said what they were looking forward to was hanging out with their friends and spending time with their family. Now, I don't want to belittle that because I love to hang out with my friends and I don't want to spend time with my family. And those of us who get to do that, we're blessed to be able to do that and I'm thankful for it. But to be honest with you, if Christmas really is what Christmas really is, then the most important thing about Christmas is not being with your friends. And the most important thing about Christmas is not spending time with your family. And that's why I really do fear that we have forgotten the thing that makes Christmas Christmas. Now, what's interesting about this birth that we celebrate is the earliest record we have of any celebration of the birth of Jesus is about 300 years after he was born. The early church didn't celebrate Christmas like we celebrate Christmas. The early Christians for three centuries didn't celebrate Christmas like we celebrate Christmas. And yet, it was because of his birth that Christmas became a holiday tradition. And you can certainly say this about Jesus, whatever else you want to say about him, whatever else you believe about him. No other person who has ever lived in history has been a magnet for everything from attention to devotion to criticism to adoration, to opposition, like Jesus. He's been a fascination for theologians and for philosophers and historians for over 2,000 years. And when you think about it, every time Christmas rolls around, it's really kind of incredible. This birth that we celebrate, that little baby that was born, was born the son of a carpenter, wasn't born into a rich family. He was born in basically a nothingville, in a tiny country called Israel, and yet his birthday alone is what celebrates time from B.C. and A.D. Far as we know, he never wrote one word that was recorded, never spoke to more than a few thousand people at a time, and yet in this planet, 24 hours a day, and in any moment in that 24 hours, there will be millions of people studying what this man said reading the words that he spoke, and even worshiping him as God. So when you raise the question, why believe in Christmas? I believe I will let a man speak 
who met this Jesus after he had already died and had been raised from the dead. The man who wrote what we're going to read in just a moment never met the earthly Jesus. He never met Jesus in the 33 years that he lived. He only met Jesus after he had died and after he had been raised from the dead. And what's more amazing, the man that wrote these words was a Jew. He wasn't just a Jew. He was a rabbi. And he wasn't just a rabbi. Just before he met Jesus, he had devoted his life to destroying Christianity. Just before he met Jesus, he hated the name Jesus. He hated everything that Jesus stood for. He didn't like anything associated with Jesus. And yet, he became probably the most famous follower of Jesus who has ever lived. His name, as many of us know, was Paul. Now, the interesting thing about Paul is this. Unlike the gospel writers, Paul never really alludes to the birth of Jesus, at least in any detail. He doesn't talk about Bethlehem. He doesn't talk about the cradle. He doesn't talk about the shepherds. He doesn't talk about, about the wise men. He doesn't talk about the angels. But even though he doesn't tell the story of Christmas, he does reveal the glory of Christmas. And when you read what this man wrote, you can at least understand why a Jewish rabbi of all people would give all that he was to all that Jesus was and became the firmest, most fervent, most excited believer in Christmas who has ever lived. I want you to listen to what he wrote. If you brought a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn to a book in the New Testament called Philippians. It's right in the midst of about four of these epistles, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're in the third of those kind of four that kind of go together. We're in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Now, while you're turning and finding this in your Bible, iPad, smartphone, whatever, someone I was reading when I was studying this message, someone said that the passage we're going to study today is a theological diamond that sparkles brighter than any other jewel in the Bible. That's a pretty strong statement. I kind of put that to the smell test, and I said, you know what? I think that person's probably right because I really believe this passage tells us about the greatest single feat that God himself has ever pulled off, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In my opinion, of all the miracles that God's ever performed and all the miracles we know about in the Bible, if you were to say to me, what is the greatest miracle God's ever pulled off? What is the most unbelievable feat that God has ever accomplished? It would not be the creation of the world because after all, he just spoke and the world came into existence. It was not the parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't walking on the water. It wasn't even raising the dead. In my opinion, the greatest miracle, the greatest feat that God has ever pulled off is when he became a man. He became just like us. He put on flesh. He put on bones. He had sinews and fibers and muscles and blood and arteries and veins just like you and me. And what Paul said about what God did is going to help us take Christmas to an entirely different dimension. As a matter of fact, this passage we're going to look at in just a moment is so rich and so deep that I'm going to make a strong statement about it. If you were to say to me, hey, I don't know anything about Christianity. I don't even know why you worship this man, Jesus. I don't even know why you celebrate his birth. I don't know why at Easter you celebrate his resurrection. I don't even know why you call yourself cross point. Why is there such an emphasis on the cross? Why all of that? I could say to you and, and, and with full confidence, let me show you one passage of Scripture, just one. 
Because this passage of Scripture summarizes Christianity from A to Z, and it basically tells us what Christians believe from beginning to end. As a matter of fact, it gives us the best definition of Christmas you will ever find in the Bible. Listen to this. Here's what Paul tells us. Christmas is the story of how God came as a human to earth so that humans on earth could come to God. That's Christmas. Christmas is the story of how God came as a human to earth so that humans on earth could come to God. And what Christmas really is, it is the classic rags to riches story. You've never read anything like it. And what Paul does is he says, look, I want to take Christmas out of the historical dimension and I want it to, I want it to, to put on it an eternal dimension. And it's why I really believe in Christmas. And, and I believe it's, it explains why Christmas is the reason why we ought to fix our focus on Jesus, why we ought to put our faith in Jesus, why we ought to give our fears to Jesus, and why we ought to trust our future to Jesus. Because when you read what Paul wrote in one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, it tells us really not only why we ought to believe in Christmas, but why in, a, in effect we ought to practice Christmas every single day. Day. Now, here's what Paul says. First thing he tells us is this. He said, we should celebrate why Jesus came. Not when Jesus came, why Jesus came. Now, remember, as we look into this passage here in just a moment, Paul does not give any details about the birth of Jesus. He leaves all of that to Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke looked at the birth of Jesus historically. And they said, okay, this is what happened. Paul doesn't look at the birth of Jesus historically. He looks at it theologically. He says, this is why it happened. This is the theological truth. And so here's what Paul does. Paul says, you cannot understand what happened 2,000 years ago if you go all the way back before the creation of the world, before you go all the way back before time even began. And so Paul pull back, pulls back the curtains of eternity, and he says, let me show you what took place before Jesus was even born. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves or have this attitude among yourselves. Let me just stop right here. This is not just theological. This is very practical. Paul is going to tell us why Christmas ought to impact the very way that we live and the way we act and the way we think. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, two things jump out immediately. Paul says, first of all, Jesus was in the form of God. Now, that, that, that word form refers to a Roman stamp, and you're probably aware of this, but if you're not, back in Bible days, whenever an official government document would, would, be, would be signed to make sure it was official, they would seal it with hot wax. They would take, um, they would take an instrument, they would take a ring, and they would bear the, they, they, would, they would press down uh, with the emperor's ring into this hot wax, and then they would put that seal on that document, and, and it would let you know that this was an official government document. And the impression in the wax would be the exact representation of the insignia of the ring. That's the word that Paul is using here. What Paul is saying is Jesus is the exact right down to the infinite detail, precise representation of God. He was in the form of God. And then to make it plain, he says, oh, by the way, he was equal with God because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That Greek word for equality is the word isos, 
And if you remember ge geometry, it gives us the word isosceles. You remember what an isosceles triangle is, I'm sure, right? An isosceles triangle is a triangle that has two sides of equal length, okay? That's the word that Paul uses here. And the word means equal in size, equal in quality, equal in character. So what Paul starts out by telling us is this. He says, understand that before that baby was born, before that baby was put in that cradle, before that baby was conceived in the womb of his mother, that baby was God. However, he did not cling to that equality when he came to this earth. Now, he claimed it, but he did not cling to it. As a matter of fact, people who heard Jesus knew that he claimed to be God. His enemies understood it. John 5, 18 tells us this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Even his enemies said, we know what you're doing. You're blaspheming. You're telling us you are God in the flesh. You are telling us that you and God are one. You are telling us that everything God is, you are. So understand this. When Jesus became a man, he never ceased to be God. People, people sometimes can't really, can't really put this in their mind. When Jesus became a man, there was no subtraction. He remained God in all of his fullness. There was a time when Jesus was God, but not man. There was never a time when Jesus was man, but not God. There was no subtraction. There was no division. Jesus did not give up any of his godhood to make room for his manhood. He was not part human and part divine. He was not a mixture of deity and humanity. His deity was not humanized and his humanity was not deified. He was fully God and he was fully man throughout in his entire life. So here's what happened when Jesus was born. It was not subtraction and it was not division. It was addition. When Jesus Christ was born, he added to his divine nature human nature, which no, which he had never before possessed. He added humanity to his deity. So from the time that little baby was born, he was both God and man. He was fully God in that little cradle. He was also fully man. He was two natures in one personality. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. And this is why it really irritates me when you hear all these. I was listening the other day. I listened to a Christmas special the other night. And if I taped it because I love the artist that does all these Christmas songs. The thing that bothered me was, and for a solid hour, this guy that has a great voice did not sing one song about the birth of Jesus. Not one. And it bothers me. And let me tell you why. If Jesus Christ was not God, let's just say he was just a man like everybody else. If Jesus Christ was not God, then Christmas may as well be a fable. Because if Jesus was not God, and I, I say this with all respect, if Jesus Christ is not God, he's about as useful to us as Santa Claus. He, he really is, is about as meaningful as, as Rudolph or Frosty the snowman. Because Jesus is not just a man among men. He's not just first among equals. He's not even the greatest of the great. Here's the way I like to put it to people. If the FBI were to discover the fingerprints of Jesus, if somehow we could use DNA testing and somehow we could use all of our scientific knowledge and let's just say that, that we could just find one thing with the fingerprints of Jesus you would have the fingerprints of God because he was God. He was fully God. Now, in light of that, here's the other amazing thing that Paul tells us about Jesus. But he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, here's what Paul says that just is mind-boggling. He says, God not only left eternity and came to earth and became a man, he became the lowest of men. And see, this is what puzzled so many who met him. Even his own disciples, they couldn't figure it out. Because there were a lot of Jews, as you well know, <coughs> when Jesus was born, they were looking for a Messiah. They knew what the Old Testament prophesied. They knew what God had promised. They knew that God wouldn't fail to keep his promise. So all these centuries had passed, and they were looking for a Messiah. But the Messiah they were looking for would be a conquering, reigning, honored deliverer. Had they ever thought, if somebody even said to them, has it ever occurred to you that the Messiah might come as a man just like you and me? Even if that thought had come into their mind, they would have expected him to be born into a prominent family. They would have expected him to get the finest education. They would have expected him to be surrounded with servants who would do his bidding. They would have expected him to be protected from all danger. They would have expected him to be protected from any kind of criticism. And then Paul comes along and says, oh, let me tell you what he did. He took on the form of a servant. And the word for servant there is the word doulos, which doesn't mean servant. It means slave. He took on the form of a slave. Now, there was one thing that made a slave a slave. A slave owned nothing. And you think about it. God comes to earth in the form of a man. And you go back and you look at Jesus. And for 33 years, as far as we know, he owned nothing. He borrowed everything. He borrowed a place to be born. He borrowed a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. He borrowed places to sleep. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into town. He had to borrow a room to have the Lord's Supper. He even had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. Paul says he came in the form of a servant. He said, but it goes better than that. He was born in the likeness of men. That, now, that word likeness, it means exactly what it appears to be. Jesus was not a clone. He was not God in disguise. He was not just a facsimile of a man. He didn't just appear to be a man. Paul said he was born in the likeness of men. He was a real flesh and blood man. See, here's what's so unique to those of us who are Christians. Here's what's so unbelievable about Christianity. What is so unique to the Christian is not that Jesus was God. That's not what's unique. What is unique is that in Jesus, God had become a human being. Because think about this. If Jesus had come to earth and he was fully God, he wasn't man at all, he just came as God. He was God in heaven. He was only God on earth. Well, that's exactly what we've expected as God, right? Because God can never just stop being God. So if Jesus had come to earth just as God, we would have said, okay, I understand that. But that God would come not just as a man, but as the lowest of men, almost every other religion, that's where they just stop and say, that's so ungodlike. That is so undivine-like. That is so undeity-like. What do you mean he came as a servant? Because you see, the only faith in all the world, the only faith in all the world that says it is essential that God become a human being is Christianity. No other religion requires that of their God. No other religion says of the God that they worship, if we're going to relate to each other, if you're going to know me, I'm going to know you, you've got to become just like us. 
But Christianity says that is exactly what had to happen. That is exactly what did happen. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus became one of us. I was reading the other day about a, a mental hospital. And they just hired a brand new psychiatrist to treat all the people that were there. And they had these severe emotional and mental problems. Well, after the doctor had been there for a few weeks, one of the patients came up to him. And he said, uh, doctor, we all like you so much better than the last doctor that we had. And the doctor said, uh, really? He said, why is that? He said, you seem just like one of us. Now, that's the miracle of Christmas. That is the unbelievable message of Christianity, that God became just like one of us. But now, see, that raises a great question that people would normally ask, and I don't blame them. They say, wait a minute, why would God do that? Why, why in the world would the Son of God leave the glory of heaven and become a man? Why would he leave a throne as a king and come to earth as a slave? Why would he leave a place where all he had known for all eternity was glory and honor and praise and worship and adoration? Why would he leave all of that just to come to a place where he would be ridiculed, rejected, spat upon, beaten, whipped, cursed, and crucified as a common criminal? Why would he do that? Well, that's another reason why Paul said, I believe in Christmas. And it's another reason why we ought to celebrate Christmas. Because here's the second thing I want you to see. We should not only celebrate why Jesus came. We should imitate what Jesus did. We should imitate what Jesus did. Now listen, God became a man. We've already established that, right? The highest went to the lowest. However, just how low could Jesus go? Well, Paul keeps going in verse 8. And being found in human form, we've already addressed that. Look what Jesus does. He humbled himself. Now, we're going to learn what humility is all about. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is born, and immediately he humbles himself. He goes from sitting on a throne to lying in a manger to hanging on a tree. He went from being a king with a crown to a baby with diapers to a criminal on a cross. Why did he do that? Because your soul was more important than his blood. Because our eternal life was more important than his earthly life. Jesus did all of that because our place in heaven was more important to him than his place in heaven. He gave up his place so we could have our place. And see, Jesus teaches us what real humility is. Here's what Paul said. He said, he humbled himself by obeying God, and not just obeying God, even to the point of death. This is, this, is, this is a big deal to me. Jesus did not die out of obligation. He wasn't paid to do it. Nobody made him do it. Nobody coerced him to do it. He didn't die out of obligation. He died out of obedience. When the Father said to the Son, Son, would you leave the glory of heaven for the grief you're going to get on earth? He said, Yes. When the father said to the son, would you die for all the sins of the world that you did not even commit? He said, yes. He said, son, will you agree to be totally separated from me, though that's never happened before in all eternity? Would you forever be separated from me so that others don't have to be separated from me? He said, yes. The father didn't force death on Jesus. He didn't coerce the son to die. It was the father's will that he die, but it was the son's decision to obey the father. 
They say, how do you know that Jesus did that? It's real simple. Jesus must have had a free choice to decide whether or not he was going to die or not, or else it wouldn't have said he was obedient. Because if you can be obedient, then you can also be what? Disobedient. So it was totally up to Jesus. The father called him to die, but he did not compel him to die. And Jesus just voluntarily, out of obedience to the father, laid his life down for us. Now, this is why I love the way Paul talks about Christmas. Because Paul goes from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus. And I think Paul's trying to tell us something. And this is why so many people don't understand Christmas. You cannot celebrate the birth of Jesus from the death of Jesus. You cannot celebrate the cradle from the cross. Yes, God became man, but not just to live with us, but to die for us. Now, it was as man that Jesus died, but it was as God that he died for us. And see, this is why so many people out there today and all the rest of this week and all this Christmas season never really get what Christmas is all about. Listen carefully. The cradle without the cross is incomplete. But the cross without the cradle is ineffective. If Jesus is born as God and becomes man but doesn't die for us, what good did he do? But if Jesus died on the cross but he was not God so he could take our sins, what good did he do? And so Paul goes on to say he, died, he wasn't just obedient unto death. He says, Let, let's understand something. He said he was obedient even to death on a cross. Now, to a Jew, that was a big deal. He said, I want you to understand, Jesus didn't die a peaceful death on a soft bed surrounded by friends and family. When my uh, father-in-law died a couple of uh, weeks ago, we were talking about it right after he took his last breath, right after he went to be with the Lord. And, and one of his pastors looked at me and he said, you know, he said, it's really, really a wonderful thing if you can pull it off. He said, it's a wonderful thing to be able to lie on your deathbed surrounded by all of your family, those who are closest to you, telling you that they, telling them that they love you. And, that, and, and they literally, and we literally prayed our, my father-in-law into heaven. And I thought, you know, that really is so wonderful. Jesus didn't die that way. He died the death of a common everyday criminal. That's why Paul says, even the death on the cross, because to this day, crucifixion is still perhaps the most cruel, excruciating, painful, and shameful form of execution ever conceived by humanity. It was the lowest form of death you could have. It was reserved for slaves. If you are a Roman citizen, you could, it, no matter what you did, you could rape a thousand women and murder a thousand babies. But if you're a Roman citizen, you were too good to be crucified. You did not have to be crucified. But it was that kind of death that Jesus died for us. He ended his life serving us. Now, this is why I want you to really hone in here. What God wants us to do every day of our life is to do the same thing Jesus did in his life. He wants us to humble ourselves. Now, that's a hard thing to do. Because, you know, can I just be honest? The moment you think you're humble, you're not. The moment you think you got it, you lost it. So what does it mean to humble yourself? Here's what it means. Humbling yourself is obeying God and serving others. That's what it means to humble yourself. So let me give you an example. We receive an offering. When you obey God and give God a tithe of your offering, you just humbled yourself. When you've got an opportunity to serve, whether, whether it's 
help park cars in our parking lot or whether it's serving our Celebrate Recovery or it's serving our Care Point ministry or whether it's just picking up trash on the grounds or it's leading a small group in your home. You say, I'm going to serve others. You are humbling yourself. See, think about this. Before creation, Jesus was at the very top of the organizational chart of the universe. He was God. But he gave up his right to be just God, and he became a human being. But he didn't just become a human being. He became a servant. And he didn't just become a servant. He became a Savior who died on the cross. You know, we spend most of our life climbing ladders. Jesus spent all of his life coming down ladders. Jesus came to teach us the way up is down. We think the way up is up. He said, no, no, no. The way up is down. Think about this. You go back. This is kind of amazing. Have you, has it ever occurred to you that in, the, in his entire 33 years of life, he never played the God card one time? He never pulled rank. He never asked to be the first in line. He never demanded his rights. Every time Jesus exercised his power, every time Jesus exercised his authority as God, he always leveraged it for two things the good of others, and the glory of God. Every time. He never did it for himself. He always exercised his power for the good of others and the glory of God. He spent his life doing two things. I'm going to obey God and serve others. I'm going to obey God and serve others. And that's the key to this entire passage and is the key to understanding Christmas. See, Christmas is not just what Jesus did for us. That's what we talk about all the time. Oh, isn't it wonderful that God came to earth as a human being? Isn't it wonderful he was laid in a manger? Isn't it wonderful that he died for our sins? Isn't it wonderful he forgives us? Isn't it wonderful he heals, he heals us? Yes, it is. But that's not what Christmas is all about. It's not about just what he did for us. It's also what we are to do for him. The way he lived his life is the way we're to live our life. That's why Paul said this back up in verse 5. He said, in your relationships with one another, that's, that's the way we relate to each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He spent his entire life doing two things. I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to serve others, and so should we. And by the way, if we had the same mindset that he did, every marriage would be a lot better. Every nation would get along a lot better. Every church would have more harmony and peace if we just have that same mindset. You say, but I'm not God. No, we're not God, but we can be gracious. But, but I'm not heavenly. No, but we can be humble. Well, I'm not sovereign. No, but we can be a servant. Because to really believe in Jesus means I want to not just celebrate why he came. I want to imitate what he did. And here's the way it works. He said, have that same mindset when you start thinking the way Jesus thought, you'll start living the way Jesus lived. When you start seeing people the way Jesus see, sees you, you'll start living the way that Jesus lived. Now, once you decide, you know what? I want to do that. I want my life to imitate the life of that man. Then you just naturally will do one last thing. Paul says, we should elevate who Jesus is. Well, to celebrate why he came. We ought to imitate what he did, but we ought to celebrate who Jesus is. Now, let's go back to what Paul said, kind of give a summary. Here's Jesus. He's eternally God, always been God. He leaves heaven, comes to earth, takes on the form of a man, becomes a servant, dies on a cross, buried in a tomb, and raised from the dead. Now, again, raise a question. Why did he really do that? 
Now, the answer that we always give and the answer that we've heard many times is, oh, he did all of that so that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might be saved, and that we might receive eternal life. Okay, we've heard that and hear it all the time. That is a right answer. It's not a wrong answer. It's a right answer. The problem is it's just a partial answer. It's not the complete answer. If you want to know the ultimate, can I tell you the number one reason why Jesus did all of that? The number one reason why he left earth, the number one reason why he was born of a virgin, the number one reason why he was laid in a cradle, the number one reason he lived a perfect life, the number one reason he died on the cross, and the number one reason he was raised from the dead, and the number one reason why he's coming back. You don't want to know the real reason why? Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the, what's that word? Lord of both the dead and the living. See, it's okay to celebrate that baby in a cradle. And we ought to be grateful for that Savior who died on a cross. But if you're going to really believe in Christmas, and if you're going to really believe in the real Christmas, you can't leave Jesus on a cross, and you can't leave Jesus in a tomb. You've got to get him off the cross, and you've got to get him out of the tomb, and you've got to put him on a throne. So watch what Paul does. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, the next two or three verses. Paul says, when you understand and you celebrate why Jesus came, and you say, you know what? I want to imitate what he did. I want my life to be a pattern of his life. Paul says, then here's what will happen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, that word, therefore, is one of the most important words in the Bible, right? Always ask a question when you come to that word. What's that therefore, therefore? Well, why is that there? All right, Because every time you read that word, whoever writes it says, okay, go back and review what I just said. What Paul is saying is, in light of the fact that he obeyed God, in light of the fact that he served others, God exalts him to the highest place. Now, see, here's, here's where, again, the Bible's so different, and the way God thinks is different from the way we think. We tend to think exaltation and humiliation are always polar opposites. They never, ever lead in the same direction. Their paths never cross. So if you want to go up, you climb the ladder. If you want to go up, you step on other people. You want to go up, you make sure you put yourself first. Exaltation and humiliation never, ever go together. Paul says that's wrong. He says with God, humiliation always leads to exaltation. When you suffer humiliation for God, you will experience exaltation by God. That's why James 4.10 says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So God has given Jesus the name which is above every name. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that. They say, oh, so the name Jesus is above every name. No, that's not the name above every name. There, Jesus was a very common name in Bible days. There were a lot of little boys running around Israel and their name was Jesus. It was a very common name. No, the name that Jesus was given that's above every other name is the name Lord because that's the name of God. God himself said this. He said, I am the Lord. That's my name. If you said to God right now, God, what's your name? He said, my name is Lord. Jesus is his name of humiliation. Lord is his name of exaltation. In humiliation, Jesus is our redeemer. 
But in exaltation, he is our ruler because the Greek word for Lord literally means ruler. And it refers to someone who is the master and owner of everything. So Paul is kind of bringing all this to the climax here. And he's saying, look, Jesus was born as a man so he could relate to us. He died on a cross so that he could redeem us. He was raised as Lord to rule over us. Now Paul says, here's how the whole world's going to respond to Jesus. Not just at Christmas, but at the end of all time, here's how the world's going to respond. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, when you bow your knee, right, you're surrendering. If you proposed like that, you understand what just happened. Right, guys? White flag. Just, you surrendered. That's what it means. When you bow the name, you surrender. When you bow your knee, what you're saying is, I'm honoring you. I'm exalting you. I'm elevating you. I'm lifting up you. And Paul doesn't mince words. He says, every knee is going to bow, whether by force or by choice. He says, every knee above us in heaven, whether it be angels or humans, every knee around us, whether it be believers or unbelievers, every knee under us, the devil and every demon is going to bow and surrender to his lordship. But Paul goes on to say, it won't be done silently. Here's what he says. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is an amazing thought. Paul says, every tongue, nobody gets a free pass. Nobody gets let out of the line. Every tongue, every atheist tongue, every agnostic tongue, every angelic tongue, every demonic tongue, every Hindu tongue, every Buddhist tongue, every Christian tongue, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he says, it's all going to be done to the glory of God the Father. Now I'm going to wrap all this up. You want to know what Christmas really is all about? Christmas now finally tells us why we ought to believe in it and why it really unlocks the key to the meaning of all of life. You ready? Here's what Paul says. The purpose of this entire universe, the purpose of all of history, the purpose of your life and the purpose of my life can all be summarized in four words. The glory of God. You were put here to bring glory to God. I was put here to bring glory to God. This earth was created to give glory to God. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea are to give glory to God. The stars and the suns and the moons of the planets all are to give glory to God the Father. And what Paul is saying is this. 
the best way and the greatest way ultimately that you give glory to God is when you surrender and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you surrender all that you are to all that he is. There is nothing that brings more glory to the God the Father than when you confess that the Son is the Lord and you surrender your life to him. So, Christmas really, now we understand this is what real Christmas really comes down to. And this is why people fight against Christmas. And this is why people don't want to sing Christmas carols. And this is why they want to take Christ out of Christmas. I get it. I understand it. I really do. Let me tell you why. See, you can avoid God all of your life. From the time you draw your first breath to the time you draw your last breath, you can thumb your nose at God. You can say, you're having no part in my life. You're having no place in my life. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I'm going to call my own shots. I'm going to do my own thing. And there's not one thing you're going to do about it. There's not one thing you can do about it. I'm going to avoid you all of my life. You can do that. But what Paul is reminding all of us is, yes, you can avoid God all of your life. But you can't avoid God at the end of your life. Because when you draw your last breath, he'll be there waiting. He's always sitting at the end of your path. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you don't hear anything else I say to you today, hear this, because one day you'll be reminded you heard it. One of these days, you will bow your knee. And one of these days, your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. It doesn't matter whether you like that or not. It doesn't matter whether you accept that or not. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And I'm just stating the fact. One of these days, you will be in this posture. And your tongue will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And you will confess that he is the rightful ruler of this universe. So, now let's see what Christmas really is all about. Because the next time we celebrate Christmas, maybe a year from now for all living, next time we go through all this season again, Christmas reminds us when you really get down to it, we really only have one mission in life. I don't know if you thought about that. You can have a lot of goals, you can have a lot of aspirations. You can have a lot of objectives. But really and truly, from the time you're born to the time you die, there's only one thing you really better figure out. There's only one mission you've got in life, and it's this. You've got to figure out who really is in charge. Who really is in charge of this universe? Who really is in charge of this world? Who really is in charge of this nation? Who really is in charge of my family? And who really is in charge of my life? Well, let me assure you, it's not Washington. And it's not Hollywood. And it's not Wall Street. You better figure it out. The one that's in charge 
is Jesus Christ. And when he comes back to this earth, he ain't coming back to take sides. He's coming back to take over. And when he comes back, this Jesus, who was born of that virgin, who lived that perfect life, who died on that cross, who was raised from the dead, now wants to be your Savior and now wants to be your Lord. And that is the Christmas we all should believe in. Let's pray together.